Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Oh boy. Is James here? Who? James Bowen. Oh, Jim lives, go up the driveway. It's the house right in back of this one. Thank you. Yeah, that's where he lives. Great. tiny house tucked away off the road. There were shoes outside on the ground and some clothes hanging up to dry. A cat inside the house pressed itself against the window. Someone clearly lived here. They just weren't home. I went back to the car and waited. A few hours passed and nothing. No one came in or out. It was at this point that I began to question whether or not I was at the right place. I don't know. I just had a feeling. My producer Mike and I spent the next hour digging up as much info on Bo as we could to see if we can find anything new. Searching his name in this town eventually took us to a new website, one that we hadn't seen before. And on there was a picture of him. The only problem was, it wasn't him. He looked nothing like the image I had. Another guy with the same exact name, same age, in the same tiny town in Oregon? What are the chances? I sent the picture to a few different people. Was this Bo? Could this be Bo? They all said no. 
sorry to bother you again. Is this the Jim who lives here? Yeah. It is? Uh-huh. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. Fuck. This is who lives here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. make of that. I'm disappointed. I'm not convinced. That, that's, that's not the guy? I mean, that he's not here. I wasn't convinced. And I was pissed that we drove five hours to the middle of nowhere to not even find his house. As I was thumbing furiously through my phone, all of a sudden I found something I had somehow missed. I have no idea how. According to the internet, there was in fact another James Bowen about 20 miles from here. This one, I did have a feeling about. Left here. And it'll be on the left in 400 feet. 261. Whoa. Oh my. Dude, that is scary as fuck. Huh. Like, this seems more like his house than the other one. Yes. This house looked like a pirate's den. A huge black tarp hanging with the words keep out spray painted on it. I tried looking for a front door to knock on but the entire porch was basically caged up. There was a chain link fence around it, so no luck there. In the woods off in the distance, I saw a tall woman shoveling dirt. My first thought was maybe it was a neighbor and I should go ask her if James Bowen lives here. As I slowly approached this person, I became overwhelmed by an uneasy feeling in my stomach. What I thought was a woman was actually a man and I had only assumed that because they had long blonde hair. I was deep in the woods at this point within about 15 feet of him. His back was facing me, still shoveling dirt, and he had no idea I was behind him. I did not want to startle him, so I made my presence known. Excuse me, sir. Hello, sir. The second he turned around, I was like a deer in headlights. This, without a doubt, was the bow I was looking for. Hey, I'm looking for James. What? I'm looking for James. Who the hell are you? I'm Payne Lindsay. What are you, are you going? Are you James? What do you want? I, um, I'm doing a documentary about Mary Joya and Greg Niffin. What the fuck is that? Do you know who that is? No. Were you ever in Rainbow Village in 85? Get the fuck off my property. Were you? Get the fuck off my property. You know what that fucking means? I'm calling the police, motherfucker. All right. Yeah. You took them off my fucking property. Okay, I'm walking, man. Hold on. The whole time I was walking away, leaving his property like he asked. Did you know them? Fuck the ass off my fucking property. Why are you so mad? He lunged towards me a few times with a shovel in his hands. Did you kill them? It was time to go. Did you know Mary Joya? As I got closer to the car, 
Bo took off full speed towards the house. My gut instinct was this guy was grabbing a gun. That's fucking him, dude. Why risk it? Why put yourself out there? Why endanger yourself? True artists don't ask these questions. They just busy themselves with taking chances. It's in their nature, and of this nature from risk, the best art is born. What do Bruce Springsteen, Mick Jagger, Joan Baez, Johnny Cash, the Black Crows, Black Rebel Motorcycle Club, Joni Mitchell, Mike Ness, Bruce Hornsby, The Band, Nick Cave, Emmylou Harris, and Lefty Frizzell all have in common? The Long Black Veil. The haunting ballad was first recorded back in March of 1959. Lefty got to the Danny Dill and Mary John Wilkin composition first, and his version was the song's first appearance on the charts. A bona fide country smash at number six. In 1974, an artist named Sammy Smith found additional success with the song and wrote it all the way up the country charts to number 26. Nearly all of the artists above had hit albums that included Long Black Veil amongst the track listings. The song is not a likely hit. It doesn't feel good. There is no hope at all in its lyrics or melody. It is pretty far from being poppy in any way, and there was nothing in the way of obvious commercial gain in the act of recording this song for any of the aforementioned artists. It was a risk because it is a song, of course, that is about murder. But specifically, about a man being falsely accused of murder and executed. The lyrics to Long Black Veil start out with all the eeriness you'd expect from a campfire ghost story. Ten years ago, on a cold, dark night, someone was killed beneath the town hall light. And there were few at the scene, but they all agreed that the slayer who fled looked a lot like me. Whether or not Ralph International Thomas ever heard any version of the Long Black Veil and what he thought about it is unknown. We would ask him, but he's dead. International was accused of murder, perhaps falsely, and he died alone in a prison cell. Much like the accused in Long Black Veil, except that unlucky soul was sent to the hangman, up high on the scaffold, in front of a morbidly curious crowd to meet his fate, publicly with the woman he loved, the woman he was protecting, in the audience there to watch him hanged. Long Black Veil continues, Oh, the scaffold is high and eternity is near. She stood in the crowd and shed not a tear. But late at night when the cold wind blows, in a long black veil, she cries over my bones. Who cried over Ralph International Thomas? 
In Long Black Veil, just like in the case of Mary Joya and Greg Niffen, there is grave injustice, inequality. Jerry Garcia concerned himself with such themes throughout his life, as did the best of his generation in The Grateful Dead, however apolitical they presented themselves to be. As just musicians merely concerned with the next gig, it is clear that they too care deeply about these themes as well. Equality, justice, freedom, these ideas were central to the ethos of the Grateful Dead and to Jerry Garcia personally. Going back to Jerry's earliest days as a performer, back to his days before the dead, before the warlocks, before even his first bluegrass outfit of any note, Mother McCree's Uptown Jug Champions, to his days as a simple folky with a banjo, a mandolin, and an acoustic guitar back to 1963, years before the majority of the artists mentioned at the top of this segment thought to lend their voice to the underlying themes in Long Black Veil. Jerry brought the song to the stage with his new wife Sarah accompanying him. Because injustice is always worth shining a light on, and righting wrongs is always a worthy endeavor. It's what drew Jerry Garcia to Long Black Veil, and it's what drew Payne and I to this story, and what led to Payne being chased off of a suspected killer's property. That's fucking him, dude. And the sense of doing what's right is what has led to a number of Mary Joya and Greg Niffin's friends to speak with us, to right a potential wrong, to tip the scales from injustice to justice, to help get to the truth. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Were you ever in Rainbow Village in 85? Get the fuck off my property. Were you? Get the fuck off my property. You know what that fucking means? Oh, that's his voice. Yeah. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah. After my intense encounter with Bo, I did the only thing I could think of, really, which was play it for everyone I met. What a response, huh? That sounds really scary. That is not the response of, like, a sane person. I don't want to say innocent or guilty, but that's not the response of, like, a normal person. I mean, he's probably been waiting for this shit to come around ever since. I mean, it severed his relationship with, with dead family, right? I mean... He disappeared from my house the morning after being confronted by Weston. He just evaporated. And I don't remember if I ever saw him again, except for the sighting I had many years later, like a, a one-minute sighting at a festival. You know what that fucking means? Call the police. 
<laughs> yeah, that's pretty. Uh, that's pretty telling. Yeah, it's, it's super weird. Well, that that uh, definitely says he knows what you're talking about. I mean, uh, yeah, as soon as you mentioned the people, he reacted. He didn't react until you mentioned what you were, who you were talking about, did he? Yeah. That's actually George Walker, one of the original Merry Pranksters. He didn't want to admit who he was at first from the initial. No. Were you ever in Rainbow Village in '85? What more do you need to hear? He thought for a minute. It does, however, also validate what everyone said about Bo. He's not your run-of-the-mill happy hippie. He's just got a whole nother thing going on, and you got a little taste of it, which is not the reaction that someone would have if they had no idea who those people were. They would more likely be like, "What, what, what are you talking about? A question or two, maybe, not just zero to 60, get off my land. You just mentioned their names. You didn't say anything else about who they were or what, what had, might have happened to them. So on the one hand, it's kind of indicating, like I feel, I feel even more confident that they more likely than International actually committed the crime, Bowen specifically, and uh, sadly there's just nothing that can be done. There's no evidence. You know, it just makes me sad. You know, it was sad at the time, and here we are 25 years later, and it's a sufficiently compelling story that you're taking the time to run it down, and it kind of runs down the way I would have expected that it would. You know, I honestly don't even know what to say. What is there to say, really? He probably did it, and he's gonna live with that for the rest of his life. Maybe that explains why he lives the way he does and where he does and hasn't moved and has no friends. I mean, we're, we're back to the original problem, which is that the public defender failed to investigate it because he had a suspect that was black and had a gun and it was just all too easy to just get a conviction. It's, I'll say it again, it's a tragedy. More than likely, the guy who spent another 30 years in jail and died in jail did not commit this crime. And it makes you wonder just how many other people have suffered the same fate. Wow. 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 The guy is clearly violent and crazy whether he's violent and crazy because you're on his property or because he's a killer, I think the denial of Mary and Greg and Rainbow Village, implicit denial, is pretty powerful. I think it gives you a really powerful case on him. Certainly need more in court, but in terms of reality, I think it's very strong. He's been hiding from this for 30 years, 35 years, literally 35 years. So here it comes up, tap, tap, tap. Boy, interesting. You know, honestly, I've been pretty certain, as certain as you can be without being a witness, Bo did it and that Weston was there with him that night. So it's kind of um, reassuring in a way that we had it right. Once the state takes a position 
that this guy did it. Even if the case is reversed because of DNA evidence, they're very loath to prosecute another guy. It's not impossible, but it doesn't happen very much because they don't want to, they don't want to go back. They don't want to admit they're wrong. They never admitted they were wrong in this case. They fought this case tooth and nail for 27 years until he died in custody. That was the win for them. That's how they looked at it, and that's how they would look at it now. Unless you had something like a confession, I can't see a district attorney in Alameda County deciding to do this. The district attorney in Alameda County is a different kind of animal than they were in 1985. This guy, Jimmy Anderson, who was the lawyer on the case, he was a horrible guy. He was just bloodthirsty. And he was right, and he knew he was right. He was such a racist. And was not exonerated in the court of law. Maybe in court of public opinion, he's exonerated. But he didn't get that opportunity because he died. He died not a convicted man because his conviction was reversed. But he did not die an exonerated person. What I can say is that all of this is very reinforcing to what we believed. You've presented from Weston and Bo, particularly Weston's lies and the way he contradicts himself over and over again about Bo and knowing Bo. Yeah, I knew him. I didn't know him. All that stuff that's very typical of someone who's trying to make it up and figure out what you know and what he can say and what will get over. You know, the way he presented himself as I want to be helpful and all that, that is a common effort to disarm someone or try and disarm someone. So everything adds up. Why would he lie? Why would he deny that he knew Bo? Five or six people at least have put him together with Bo. It wasn't a hidden situation. To say, no, I don't know him, and then to go, oh yeah, I did. I saw him the next day after the killing. All of this stuff is just typical of somebody who's jumping around looking for a purchase, a ledge that they can safely land on. It was very, very telling what you got from Weston. And from Bo, honestly, I, it didn't surprise me. We thought the evidence showed he did something terribly violent, very kind of antisocial, violent and antisocial behavior. And that sort of encapsulates what his response to you was. It was violent, it was antisocial, denying he knew Mary and Greg Niffin, which we know is a lie because of all of this evidence. It's not like he forgot. He lied. He didn't want you to know anything about him knowing those people. I think there's a lot in it that's very supportive of the evidence, which is evidence that he did it. And all the other people who were there or who saw him, yeah, it's validating. It's not court proof but it's very validating. And there's a difference for a reason, because you really don't want innocent people to be convicted, and you want to make that a very high bar. He's right, which is kind of ironic. That's exactly how International was convicted. Poor circumstantial evidence. The way people run their lives and the kinds of decisions that they make is not based on evidence like that. It's based on common sense and how things match up or don't match up. This matches up. Bo, I would stay away from. He killed these people. Yeah, and it's a shame because he's a really violent person and he's just out there in society and his first reaction to you is, I'm gonna get you. Violence.
the district attorney has all the power in the world. They can make a deal with Weston and say, we won't prosecute you in exchange for your testimony. If Weston confessed, then you could take it to O'Malley, even if Bo didn't. But if you had that response from Bo, and Weston confessed and said, yeah, he did it, they might be interested in doing justice. Barring some sort of confession, this case was going nowhere. I never set out to prove or disprove Ralph International's innocence. I just followed the story wherever it took me. The circumstantial evidence that points towards Bo and Weston is clearly undeniable. In my opinion, it does seem to outweigh the evidence they had against International. The one thing that really didn't look good for Ralph was his dark criminal history. And let's be clear about this, it was bad. After doing some more research, I was able to obtain some more details about the charges. On July 24, 1974, Ralph Thomas was convicted of two counts of rape and one count of armed robbery. On November 1, 1974, he was found guilty of two counts of kidnapping, two counts of rape, two counts of robbery, and one count of sodomy. According to attorney Alex Reisman, apparently Ralph Thomas was more of the accomplice in these crimes, and not the actual aggressor. Regardless, these are bad things, and it's not a good look. The reason I'm detailing these charges is because I felt compelled to, because of what I'm about to tell you. In my deep dive into Bo and Weston's history, I found something extremely concerning. Not about Bo, but about Weston. For a long time I felt conflicted, whether or not I should even mention this in the podcast. And if I was going to be dissecting Weston's history, it was only fair that I did my best to expand on internationals too. So let me break this down. There were certain statements Weston made that left an impression on me. I initially cut these statements out of the podcast because I deemed them irrelevant and honestly pretty offensive. You'll see what I mean. But because some new information has come to light, I'm going to share these statements with you, starting with the first one. As Weston and I were parting ways from our interview, he began going on about his upbringing and how his parents disowned him. This was all unprovoked. He was just telling me. Strange for my family, man. My parents disowned me when I was 15. Why? They made a court and got rid of me like a piece of garbage because I was smoking pot. And the family court judge was my dad's lawyer. I knew I had seen the guy before. He'd been over to the house several times. He was our lawyer, and he was also the judge that sentenced me. Conflict of interest. He then moved on to talk about his brother. Well, my brother was baby powder gay, and I'm not homophobic, but dude, we don't have anything in common. I mean, he's adopted three kids now. Yeah. He's lived with like five different, he's been married five times to five different men. He was very baby not a gay. I just couldn't stand that as a kid, you know, when growing up. You could tell that he was 10, 11 years old. You could just tell he was not going to come around that bend. I found the statement offensive, and it was irrelevant to the story. At least at the time I thought it was. Fast forward a few weeks later, when Randy called Weston out of the blue. Did, did you ever hear that uh, Bo and Hurd had a relationship? No. Uh, I didn't think so. Okay. But then, I, I, don't, I don't... I thought she was, she was kind of a free spirit, like... She, she batted both ways, because she had been with... What's her name? Um, down in Santa Cruz. I know she had been down with her... Uh, what's her name? Betty. Betty? She had been with Betty down... Okay. Betty? I have no idea who Betty is. Based on his first statement to me, Weston was clearly homophobic. 
and he reveals to Randy that he thinks Mary was bisexual. I initially cut this out of the podcast because speculating on Mary's sexual orientation seemed beyond inappropriate, but I found something else. And when you put all these things together, it starts to paint a powerful picture. Weston had his own criminal history too. In the early 90s, he was arrested in Madison, Wisconsin, years after Mary and Greg's murder, and his charges actually made the local newspaper. This is how it reads. A 32-year-old Madison man was ordered held in the Dane County Jail after he was charged with beating a woman he had been living with. Weston Hugh Suddeth was charged in Dane County Circuit Court with two counts of battery, disorderly conduct, intimidation of a victim, and obstructing a police officer. He was arrested about 12.30 a.m. on Wednesday after allegedly beating and trying to strangle the woman when she ordered him out of the apartment. According to the criminal complaint, Weston tore a curtain rod off the wall, covered the woman's head with the curtain, then beat her with the rod. He is also accused of pulling out clumps of her hair. Police observed several large bumps and bruises on the woman's body. According to the complaint, the beating began when the woman came home with a female friend and asked Weston to leave. He allegedly called the woman queer, then pushed her down. To quote Weston, holy cow. Makes you wonder what, what level of involvement he actually had. He was arrested for assaulting a woman and calling her queer within a decade of that. Yep. That's just too many. That's, that's too much to be coincidence. Wow. 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 This is our Weston. Wow. Wow. Boy, really interesting. It's another instance of violence against a woman. And that was where this started, really. Everybody thinks that from what Vivian Searcy said, Bo went after Mary. And then Greg tried to help. And he got killed for that. But was Weston there? We don't know. Imagine he probably was, you know. It kind of like fills out the story. It's an amazing thing to have on Weston. I think it's powerful. I think, I mean, that's, a, that's like admissible in court. An event like that, if he were on trial for something with violence, it would be admissible because it would show a propensity. There was only one thing left to do, and that's talk to Weston again. Next time on the season finale of Dead and Gone. No one cares anymore. It's been 35 years. Uh, no, because then I'd have to wear the karma of that all the time. And my karma's clean. I mean, I don't feel weird about any of that. I mean, the only thing I felt weird about was laughing when I heard about it because it felt inappropriate, you know? Like, and I dealt with that in, like, therapy and going to NA meetings and talking about it. You know, but the only knowledge I had of it was when I heard about it the next day. I didn't even know about it. So I don't know how I could have said anything about washing hands, because, and nobody went swimming in the bay anyway. It's nasty water. Well, I mean, Mary and Greg were in the bay. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Swimming? I think they were swimming. That's where their bodies were done. Oh. Oh. Yeah. I didn't know that either. Can I be honest with you? Sure. I feel like you're not telling me the truth. 
Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Dead and Gone is written, hosted, and produced by Payne Lindsay and myself, Jake Brennan. Check out my other music and true crime podcast, Disgraceland, about musicians getting away with murder and behaving very badly, as well as Payne's other shows, Radio Rental, Atlanta Monster, and Up and Vanished. Dead and Gone is a production of Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis and brought to you by Cadence 13 and executive produced by Donald Albright, Payne Lindsay, Brady Sadler, and myself. This show is produced by Mike Rooney, mixed by Cooper Skinner, music by Makeup and Vanity Set, with additional music services by Ryan Spraker, edited by Sean Cahalan, production coordination by Matt Bowden, copy edited by Pat Healy, writing assistance by Taylor Bettinson, cover design by Matt Mills for mattmillsart.com. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum and Grace Royer from UTA, Ryan Nord, Jesse Nord, and Matthew Papa from The Nord Group, Chris Corcoran and the Cadence 13 team, Beck Media and Marketing, Station 16, and the teams at Tenderfoot TV and Double Elvis. Thanks for checking out Dead and Gone. Episodes drop every Thursday. Please make sure you're subscribed to the show wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, leave a review on Apple Podcasts or give us a shout out on social media with the hashtag Dead and Gone, and you might win a free Dead and Gone show poster designed by Nate Gonzalez. Thanks for your support. Thank you.